chapter 12. Hebrews chapter 12, we'll begin reading in verse 18, and then um, we'll continue reading through verse 8 of chapter 13. Our text is right in the middle of the reading, and our text is verses 1 through 3 of chapter 13, but I think this is important to read all of these verses to provide context, which we'll be spending a fair amount of time on during the sermon, the context in which verses 1 through 3 of chapter 13 occur. Hear now the reading of God's word. For you have not come to a mountain that can be touched and to a blazing fire and to darkness and gloom and whirlwind and to the blast of a trumpet and the sound of words which sound was such that those who heard begged that no further word be spoken to them. For they could not bear the command. If even a beast touches the mountain, it will be stoned. And so terrible was the sight that Moses said, I am full of fear and trembling. But you have come to Mount Zion and to the city of the living God, the heavenly Jerusalem, and to myriads of angels, to the general assembly and the church of the firstborn who are enrolled in heaven, and to God, the judge of all, and to the spirits of the righteous made perfect, and to Jesus, the mediator of a new covenant, and to the sprinkled blood which speaks better than the blood of Abel. See to it that you do not refuse him who is speaking. For if those did not escape when they refused him who warned them on earth, much less will we escape who turn away from him who warns from heaven. And his will, his voice shook the earth then, but now he has promised, saying, Yet once more I will shake not only the earth, but also the heaven. This expression, yet once more, denotes the removing of those things which can be shaken, as of created things, so that those things which cannot be shaken may remain. Therefore, since we receive a kingdom which cannot be shaken, let us show gratitude by which we may offer to God an acceptable service with reverence and awe, for our God is a consuming fire. Let love of the brethren continue. Do not neglect to show hospitality to strangers, for by this some have entertained angels without knowing it. Remember the prisoners as though in prison with them, and those who are ill-treated, since you yourselves are in the body. Marriage is to be held in honor among all, and the marriage bed is to be undefiled. For fornicators and adulterers, God will judge. Make sure that your character is free from the love of money, being content with what you have. For he himself has said, I will never desert you, nor will I ever forsake you. So that we confidently say, the Lord is my helper, I will not be afraid. What will men do to me? Remember those who led you, who spoke the word of God to you, and considering the result of their conduct, imitate their faith. Jesus Christ is the same yesterday and today and forever. Pause another moment for prayer. God, we ask that you would send the third person of the Trinity, the Holy Spirit, We thank you for the assurance that he is within us and among us. We pray that he would fan into flame the faith that is in us, encourage, convict, convert, transform us as we consider now your word. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.
It's an odd fact that the Bible can be a dangerous book. Pharisees and Sadducees, who knew their Bibles very well, were the ones who put Jesus to death. You see, it's, it's easy to convert the Bible into a roadmap for self-righteousness. You go to the Bible with some awareness that in yourself you are unrighteous, and if you're not careful, you leave with a roadmap for self-righteousness, which is even worse than unrighteousness. It's easy for you and me to reduce the Bible into a legalism of do's and don'ts, which results in self-righteousness and a Christless Christianity. So when we come to Hebrews chapter 13 and begin considering its verses and realize that in some ways it is a list of do's and don'ts, it is a prescription for what kingdom life should look like, the life that is fitting for the Christian, the life that is fitting for the citizen of heaven who is still here on earth, we're on dangerous ground. And to do respect to not only the book of Hebrews, but to the New Testament, we have to come into these verses of practical advice, or not, not, not advice, these practical rules for life. We have to come into them considering the context, because Hebrews chapter 13 is not the first chapter of the book of Hebrews, and it is not the only chapter of the book of Hebrews. And what you notice in reading through the New Testament is time after time, in the various letters of it, you are furnished with gospel. You are furnished with good news. You are directed towards what God has done for you in and through Jesus Christ. What Jesus Christ has done to transform you into new creation, recreation, a redeemed sinner, now saved by grace, transformed by grace. Good news, good news, good news, gospel, gospel, gospel. And it is after those reminders that you are instructed to go and live differently as a recipient of the good news, as one transformed by Jesus Christ, as one who has come to see all the ways in which Jesus Christ is better and best. You go and live differently. But we can't just focus on how to live differently. We must keep Jesus Christ at the forefront of our thoughts, of our minds, of our faith-filled vision. Ultimately, it's good news, not good advice or good rules or tips and tricks to living a little bit better of a life. We are here celebrating the good news. So what I want to do as we focus on these first three verses of Hebrews chapter 13 is consider the gospel context in which these three verses occur. And then move on to the gospel reorientation that Hebrews 13, 1 through 3 supply. And then look at gospel application of these three verses. First, gospel context. The gospel context of Hebrews 13, 1 through 3, realizing that this comes in the last chapter of Hebrews. These things are very important that Christians live in this way. It 
makes uh, Holy Scripture, the author of Hebrews, and the ultimate author, the Holy Spirit, doesn't leave us without direction. And yet, this isn't the first chapter of Hebrews. So much has occurred before this. And uh, you can go back and look at the various verses or even um, recall various sermons or listen to recordings of them in which we've worked through verse by verse in detail. But I thought it would be helpful at this point to kind of hear the gospel according to the book of Hebrews. How does the author of Hebrews and its ultimate author, the Holy Spirit, get you to train your eyes and fix your eyes on Jesus Christ before coming to the instruction of verses 1 through 3 in Hebrews 13? The very first chapter begins with wonderful assertions and declarations. The way the author of Hebrews and its ultimate author, the Holy Spirit, works throughout the book of Hebrews is by making wonderful assertions and then actually admonishing you, warning you, saying, essentially, you're not going to find salvation anywhere else. There is no other salvation like this offered. It is found in Jesus Christ and him alone. So, Assertions about Jesus Christ and then admonitions to follow that Jesus Christ. So let's work through first the assertions that occur before Hebrews chapter 13, the assertions about Jesus Christ. And, And maybe it's best just to listen to these, although I will give you the references. In Hebrews 1, in the very beginning of Hebrews 1, verses 3 through 4, we read, Jesus is the radiance of God's glory, the exact representation of God's nature, He upholds all things by the word of his power. And when he had made purification of sins, he sat down at the right hand of the majesty on high, having become as much better than the angels, as he has inherited a more excellent name than they. So immediately establishing Jesus Christ as even greater than the angels and seeing him as a redeemer. In verses 9 through 11 of Hebrews chapter 2, We read, we do see him who was made for a little while lower than the angels, namely Jesus, because of the suffering of death, crowned with glory and honor, so that by the grace of God, he might taste death for everyone. For it was fitting for him, for whom are all things, and through whom are all things, in bringing many sons to glory to perfect the author of their salvation through suffering. For both he who sanctifies And those who are sanctified are all from one Father. For this reason, he is not ashamed to call them brethren. In verses 17 through 18 of chapter 2, we read, He had to be made like his brethren in all things, so that he might become a merciful and faithful high priest in things pertaining to God, to make propitiation for the sins of the people. For since he himself was tempted in that which he has suffered, he is able to come to the aid of those who are tempted. Declaration after declaration of good news, of gospel, of Jesus Christ and what he has done. Hebrews 6, verses 19 through 20. This hope we have as an anchor of the soul, a hope both sure and steadfast, and one which enters within the veil, where Jesus has entered as a forerunner for us, having become a high priest forever according to the order of Melchizedek. Hebrews 7, verse 22 to 27, So much the more 
Also, Jesus has become the guarantee of a better covenant. The former priests, on the one hand, existed in greater numbers because they were prevented by death from continuing, but Jesus, on the other hand, because he continues forever, holds his priesthood permanently. Therefore, he is able also to save forever those who draw near to God through him, since he always lives to make intercession for them. Hebrews chapter 8, verse 1. Now the main point in what has been said is this. We have such a high priest who has taken his seat at the right hand of the throne of the majesty in the heavens. In Hebrews 8, verse 6. Now he has obtained a more excellent ministry by as much as he is also the mediator of a better covenant which has been enacted on better promises. Hebrews 9, verses 11 through 15. But when Christ appeared as high priest of the good things to come, he entered through the greater and more perfect tabernacle, the one not made with hands, that is to say, not of this creation, and not through the blood of goats and calves, but through his own blood. He entered the holy place once for all, having obtained eternal redemption. For if the blood of goats and bulls and the ashes of a heifer sprinkling those who have been defiled sanctify for the cleansing of the flesh, how much more will the blood of Christ, who through the eternal spirit offered himself without blemish to God, cleanse your conscience from dead works to serve the living God? Hebrews 9, verses 24 through 28. For Christ did not enter a holy place made with hands, a mere copy of the true one, but into heaven itself, now to appear in the presence of God for us. Nor was it that he would offer himself often as the high priest enters the holy place year by year with blood that is not his own. Otherwise, he would have needed to suffer often since the foundation of the world. But now, once, at the consummation of the ages, he has been manifested to put away sin by the sacrifice of himself. And inasmuch as it is appointed for men to die once, and after this comes judgment, so Christ, also having been offered once to bear the sins of many, will appear a second time for salvation without reference to sin to those who eagerly wait for him. Hebrews 10, verses 11 through 14. Every priest stands daily ministering and offering time after time the same sacrifices which can never take away sins. But he, having offered one sacrifice for all, sat down at the right hand of God, waiting from that time onward until his enemies be made a footstool for his feet. For by one offering... He has perfected for all time those who are sanctified. I know that's a lot of reading of scripture, but there's power in the word of God. And each one of those statements comes to you from the Holy Spirit and says, good news in Jesus Christ, good news in Jesus Christ, good news in Jesus Christ. And the Holy Spirit also brings you along with each of those assertions, admonition after admonition to pay attention to those. Hebrews 2.3, how will we escape if we neglect 
so great a salvation. Hebrews 3, 1. Therefore, holy brethren, partakers of a heavenly calling, consider Jesus, the apostle and high priest of our confession. Hebrews 3, verses 12 through 14. Take care, brethren, that there not be any one of you in any one of you an evil and unbelieving heart that falls away from the living God, but encourage one another while it's still today so that none of you will be hardened by the deceitfulness of sin. For we have become partakers of Christ if we hold fast the beginning of our assurance firm until the end. For Hebrews 4, 14 through 16, Therefore, since we have a great high priest who has passed through the heavens, Jesus, the Son of God, let us hold fast our confession, for we do not have a high priest who cannot sympathize with our weaknesses, but one who has been tempted in all things as we are, yet without sin. Therefore, let us draw near with confidence to the throne of grace, so that we may receive mercy and find grace to help in time of need. Hebrews 10, verses 19 through 23. Therefore, brothers, since we have confidence to enter the holy place by the blood of Jesus, by a new and living way, which he inaugurated for us through the veil, that is his flesh. And since we have a great high priest over the house of God, let us draw near with a sincere heart and full assurance of faith, having our hearts sprinkled clean from an evil conscience and our bodies washed with pure water. Let us hold fast the confession of our hope without wavering, for he who promised is faithful. Hebrews 10, verses 35 through 39. Therefore, do not throw away your confidence, which has a great reward, for you have need of endurance, so that when you have done the will of God, you may receive what was promised. For yet in a very little while, he who is coming will come and will not delay. But my righteous one shall live by faith. And if he shrinks back, my soul has no pleasure in him. But we are not of those who shrink back to destruction, but of those who have faith to the preserving of the soul. And then Hebrews 12. Therefore, since we have so great a cloud of witnesses surrounding us, let us also lay aside every encumbrance and the sin which so easily entangles us, and let us run with endurance the race that is set before us, fixing our eyes on Jesus, the author and perfecter of faith, who for the joy set before him endured the cross, despising the shame, and has sat down at the right hand of the throne of God. Consider him who has endured such hostility by sinners against himself so that you will not grow weary and lose heart. See, all of those declarations of gospel in Jesus Christ, of what Jesus Christ has accomplished as your great high priest, the reason why he is now at the right hand of the throne of God, and then surrounding them with admonitions to go and exercise faith and trust in him is what has so much made up the first 12 chapters of the book of Hebrews. And then in its immediate context, we are reading about how you haven't come to Mount Sinai where the law was given, but instead to Mount Zion, heavenly Jerusalem. And you are not a citizen, ultimately, of a world that can and will be shaken. Instead, you are a citizen of heaven and a member 
of an unshakable kingdom. And with that in mind, with all of that behind it, we read in verse 28 of chapter 13, therefore, considering all of that, taking account of all of those things, reckoning all of that good news, exercising faith in the Lord Jesus Christ, seeing him as the good news, we respond. And you respond through thanksgiving. You respond through the acceptable service of reverence and awe. And this faith in the Lord Jesus Christ, this belief in the good news, this gospel context brings us to the first three verses of Hebrews 13. Let love of the brethren continue. Do not neglect to show hospitality to strangers. Remember the prisoners as though in prison with them. And here we have what the gospel alone can do. A gospel reorientation. It's a a, a beautiful wordplay in the Greek language. The word for that's translated, let love of the brethren continue, that word is one you're familiar with. Philadelphia, the city of brotherly love. Well, that's the exact word that is in the Greek, Philadelphia. It's translated, let love of the brethren continue, let Philadelphia continue. And it is acknowledging that the church, this kingdom that is unshakable and its members are really and truly brothers and sisters in the Lord Jesus Christ, through Jesus Christ, the great elder brother. So let love between brothers and sisters continue. But then you, you wouldn't get this from the English, but a, a very similar word to Philadelphia is used in verse 2. Do not neglect to show hospitality to strangers. Well, there the word used is not Philadelphia, but Philoxenia. Maybe you remember a word called uh, xenophobia, which is the fear of a stranger. Well, here it's talking about the love of strangers. It's translated as uh, not neglecting to show hospitality, but the, the etymology of the word is love of the stranger. So you think about what's going on here, this gospel reorientation, taking into account everything that it means to have faith in Jesus Christ, the great high priest, what it means in practical living is you, you love your brothers and sisters in Christ, but you also exercise a love for the stranger. You're about the work of extending hospitality. Now, this is so moving to me because in preparing, it occurred to me that just over three years ago, I was to you a stranger. I don't have blood relatives in this congregation outside my own immediate family. I knew something about Columbus, Ohio, but I started to get to know you through the, the interviewing candidating process, and then week in and week out over the last three-plus years, getting to know you, and what has happened is amazing, and it demonstrates something of this gospel reorientation. I, who was a stranger to you, began more and more to think of you, to see you, as brothers and sisters in Christ, Philozenia becoming Philadelphia, love of the stranger 
graduating to love of the brothers or sisters. And you start to see that this, this dynamic, this reorientation, it doesn't just happen in the world. It's actually part of the good news. It does what nothing else accomplishes. Think about the organizations and the industries of the world. They divide. They start out with various ways to narrow down their target audience. Even think about school and grades and performance and resumes. It's all a selective process, narrowing down, paring down. The gospel says, love as brothers and sisters in Christ and love strangers as well, not neglecting to show hospitality, remembering that in so doing, sometimes you actually entertain angels, a reference to Genesis chapter 18, when Abraham actually hosted angels through his hospitality. Love of brothers and sisters, love of the stranger, even love of prisoners. Remember the prisoners as though in prison with them and those who are ill-treated, since you yourselves are in the body. Stop and take into account this fascinating amazing feature of this good news of Jesus Christ. Who does it unite? Not just brothers and sisters, but brothers and sisters and strangers. And not just brothers and sisters and strangers. Brothers, sisters, stranger, and prisoner. What institution brings us besides the church of the Lord Jesus Christ? And see that in these, this section. that the, the letter is written to a church that was persecuted, was written to Christians who were in prison for their beliefs, whose possessions were taken and then thrown in prison, and the reminder is to remember them. But see here that the church, through its good news of Jesus Christ, unites together brothers, sisters, strangers, even prisoners. Astonishing to recollect for a moment that in this list, brothers, sisters, strangers, prisoners, you have in the church of Hebrews and the church ever since a fulfillment of what Jesus Christ said in Matthew 25, verses 34 through 30. You remember that is a time which Jesus is speaking about the final judgment. And his words are, Then the king will say to those on his right, Come you who are blessed of my father. Inherit the kingdom prepared for you from the foundation of the world. For I was hungry, and you gave me something to eat. I was thirsty, and you gave me something to drink. I was a stranger, and you invited me in. Naked, and you clothed me. I was sick, and you visited me. I was in prison, and you came to me. Then the righteous will answer him, Lord, when did we see you hungry and feed you or thirsty and give you something to drink? And when did we see you a stranger and invite you in or naked and clothe you? When did we see you sick or in prison and come to you? The king will answer and say to you, truly, I say to you, to the extent that you did it to one of these brothers of mine, even the least of them, you did it to me. You see, the Holy Spirit who inspired the Gospel of Matthew is the Holy Spirit who inspired the book of Hebrews. And he's saying, through this kingdom life, 
seizing on to the good news that you have in Jesus Christ and letting it transform the way you live, you become one who loves not only brothers and sisters, but also stranger, the stranger who walks in the door as a visitor on Sunday morning, the stranger that you open your house to because he's a brother or sister in Christ, and keeping in mind prisoners and realizing that so many who profess the gospel are made prisoners for that profession. The gospel context of Hebrews 13, 1 through 3, this reorientation that uh, the, the, the gospel accomplishes, bringing together brothers and sisters, strangers and even prisoners, brings us to consider application. How should we then live? And I think really the best way to, to go about this is to think about it in terms of questions. How should you love the brothers and sisters that are surrounding you right now? What can you do for your brother and sister in Christ? What can you do for your brother who is a deacon or an elder or a pastor? What gifts has God given you that you can open up to the household and family of God that is surrounding you right now? What place of influence has God blessed you with that you can use as a blessing on others? How can you use the possessions that you have, realizing that ultimately they come from God your Father and are for the blessing of your brothers and sisters in Christ? How can you live more and more conscious, not only of your own needs and not only of the needs of your immediate family, but recognizing that the people that surround you in this room will be your brothers and sisters in Christ for all eternity. How can you bless them? How can you give to them? How can you provide for them? How can you serve them? How can you love them? How can you pray for them? How can you let love of the brethren continue? What about the stranger? It's beautiful that these verses speak about that church that this letter, the sermon, was originally written to. But isn't it exciting that every Sunday morning, strangers come through that door? I use myself as an example. I was a stranger to you over three years ago. I'm not a stranger anymore. I'm thought of as a brother. And I think of you as brothers and sisters in Christ. Each Lord's Day, the Lord brings guests visitors, strangers that we are called to love and get to know. How will you get to know strangers? How will you speak to them about the good news by which you were saved? How will you speak to them the glad tidings of great joy that we have in Jesus Christ? How will you bless them in conversation? How will you open your home to people that you don't even know because they're strangers and you're called to love strangers and because Jesus Christ says that, that even the least of his brethren in serving them, you are serving Christ himself. How do you love the stranger and prisoners and the mistreated? How do we love prisoners? There's Christians in prison. There was back then in the time of the Hebrews. There are now in our day. Do you think about the persecuted church? Do you think about areas where 
They don't have the lavish freedoms that we have here. Where there are really and truly Christians imprisoned for their faith the way there was back when this letter of Hebrews was written. And look at that note of empathy. Remember the prisoners as though in prison with them and the ill-treated since you yourselves are in the body. Think about all of the struggles that you have in your own body and all that would be deprived through prison, through torture, through mistreatment, through authorities setting them out to persecute you. Consider what it would be like for you in your body. And go in prayer for Christians who are imprisoned for Jesus' sake. Immediate application, gospel application. It's fascinating to me that in a world that has less and less reason for morality, it seems that more and more morals are constantly shoved in our direction. Be kind. Be inclusive. Validate. Affirm. Tolerate. Coexist. Respect. A culture that is so secular it has no grounding for the morals that it shoves in your direction. No, no basis for it whatsoever. As easy as it is to despair over that, to be upset over that, to realize that a secular culture has lost all of its reason to have morality and values, and that as secular of a culture as it is, it is one constantly promulgating morality and values. You be the counterculture by recognizing your values, your Christian morality is grounded in the good news itself. Love your brothers and sisters. Love even the stranger by showing hospitality. Philadelphia and Philodenia. Love the prisoner, thinking of what it's like for them. Consider it as if you yourself were in prison with them. Love the brethren, love the stranger, love the prisoner, because he who was rich for your sake became poor so that you, through his poverty, might become rich. Father in heaven,